Amen. All right. I, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to roll. Uh, that's too much energy for some of you right now. I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, all right. Uh, my name's Paul Stiver. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. We are in week two of our Ephesians series, going through the book of Ephesians, New Testament letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, last week, we looked at kind of the introduction to the letter. Pastor Brian talked about the, these two verses, Ephesians 1, 1, and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> That's some good grace right there in the introduction. But the So last week, Brian talked about kind of the apostle Paul and his founding of this uh, of churches in Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys, this ancient city of Ephesus uh, in now modern-day Turkey, and uh, and where there was a lot of a, a multi-ethnic kind of hub and, and a religious hub of different sacred sites, the goddess Artemis being worshipped by many people there. Uh, but Paul founds and, and ministers there, even starts a riot there. It's kind of wild how the gospel does that. Um, and this letter of Ephesians was kind of like a circular letter that was written kind of to a number of churches and, and circled around, passed around from, from house church to house church and those, those more local churches that they had in that day. And so those were some of the things Brian set up. He also set up um, where we're going for the next three weeks. So today's message is Identity in Christ, titled Identity in Christ, looking at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. And this is actually week one of three, looking at these verses, uh, 3 through 14. So we get to buckle in three weeks. Um, this week, though, focusing on identity in Christ. Um, next week, focusing on the spiritual blessings that are laid out in this passage. And then the third week, focusing on the glory of God and God's grace and what is laid out there in this passage. That's because there's so much in this one passage. This Actually, uh, these verses are the longest sentence in the Greek language. Um, and it is the Apostle Paul overflowing with praise. Um, and so we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at particularly how the, these verses impact our identity and our union with Christ as we see God's grand story. But, but before we do that, uh, raise your hand if you had AOL Instant Messenger. Anybody? Okay, I got like, oh yeah, all right, we do have a few people. I, you never know anymore. I try with some of these things. I realize, too, uh, my sermon intros are always nostalgia-based. Uh, this is another nostalgia-based thing. Um, so yeah, AOL Instant Messenger. The reason why I bring this up is and it's it's no longer in act it's no longer active. Uh, R.I.P. to AOL Instant Messenger, uh, December fifteenth, twenty seventeen. What this was was a desktop app on your computer, and you could message your friends and set a profile and away messages and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, and the reason I bring it up though is because uh, for me, this was like the first like way that I communicated with my friends. I had this when I was a teenager, and uh, it was my first online. Um, username, the Peace Dive 70, if you're looking, that was my uh, nickname and then my football number, because that's what your identity's built on when you're in high school, and that's when I was. Um, and so, and then, uh, you know, it was my first, you could do your username, you could do uh, your buddy icon, which was just a little image, you could do away messages when you're not at the computer, uh, you could edit your profile, you could do custom fonts, and and uh, all of it was like, this was like my first online identity. This was like me. And actually, it was kind of my first real identity. Is like, who am I as a unique person? You know, when you're kind of entering that teenage phase and you're determining what you're about, what matters to you. 
Um, but today we're going to look at identity. Um, and I want to look at a couple quotes just on how culture, society, how we might think about identity. Uh, just, some, just a few quotes here. Oscar Wilde says, be yourself. Everyone else has already taken. Uh, classic line. Put that on a t-shirt. Um, uh, George Bernard Shaw says, life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. Um, and Eric Erickson says, in the social jungle of human existence, there's no feeling of being alive without a sense of identity. And so we have this identity idea, this big deal, the identity asking the question, who are you? And so I immediately had to go to one of the greatest films of all time, The Princess Bride. Who are you? No one of consequence. I must know. Get used to disappointment. That's Wesley. Wow, no one has seen The Princess Bride? My wife, thank you. Okay, I got a little, gosh, I, am, I got nothing today. But that's what identity is asking. Identity is asking the question, who are you? Go watch The Princess Bride if you haven't. Uh, <laughs> that's the message today. Identity is saying, I am my blank. Who am I? What defines me? What, is, what gives me purpose? What gives me meaning? What do you put in that blank? What would it say if you were to fill that out? And then today we're going to look at what do the scriptures say? What does God's grand story say? And so that's where we get to our passage, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And I really want you to imagine the Apostle Paul is writing this, his pen overflowing with joy as he writes this praise to God. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance in the redemption, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So that's this longest sentence in the Greek. There was no punctuation. Paul was just overflowing with praise about God's grand story. So let's go back to it. It's praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. We've got a lot of language here. First, the praise. I've got to, Paul said, I've got to offer praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in Christ 
before the creation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. This idea in other translations is without blemish. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament and unblemished lambs being sacrificed. This is the idea, blameless, without blemish, that God would look at us in Christ and we would be without blemish, predestining us, choosing us for adoption to sonship through Christ. Why did he do it? In accordance with his pleasure and will. What gave God pleasure, what gave him joy, what he wanted to do was call the people to himself in his son to show off his grace that we would respond in praise. This grace that he's freely given us in the one he loves, in Christ. And that's that grace, blessings to the undeserving that we receive in Christ. Uh, earlier this year before our, our baby was born, we got a chance to go on a little baby moon and we went out to California. We went to McKinley Grove. This is not a picture of uh, us on the trip. It's just a picture of a sequoia tree. Well, a few sequoia trees. I, I had to go. I had to, I've always wanted to see a sequoia tree. Um, fun fact, they can't grow unless there's fires. And maybe you knew that. Um, the fires soften the ground and then the seedlings fall and can take root and, and kind of, because they take so many resources, they need other things to be dead so that they can grow. Uh, but but uh, sequoia trees can, can be 3,000 years old. They grow to like 300 feet tall when they're mature, which means that there were a thousand year old sequoia trees when the, the letter to the Ephesians was written, when Rome was a civilization which is unreal to think about how old these things are. There's actually a one in a billion chance that a seedling from a sequoia tree, even though they shed 400,000 a year, will fall and actually grow to maturity. To get one of these 3,000-year-old trees is a one in a billion chance. But when we see this God's grand story, we see the gospel is not chance. This good news, this redemption, Ephesians 1 was planned. It wasn't just a random seedling falling and, and maybe this would happen, that from eternity, God has, in accordance with his joy, planned to redeem a people in his son. He's planned to accomplish it. He's planned to redeem. He's planned to save so that we might know him. And, and so he chooses in that. We saw that in the, in the beginning here. He's Choosing us in Christ. And that can be tough for us. So we got to ask, who does he choose? First Corinthians, another letter from the Apostle Paul, says this. In verses 27 through 31 of chapter 1, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Who did God choose to receive this salvation? The lowly, the weak, the fools, the despised. It is because of him that we're in Christ. He's become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. He has acted on our behalf. That is what grace is. God's work on our behalf. So that 
we boast in the Lord. So I can't have nothing. I can't go to God and say, look what I did so that you love me. Instead, he loves me and moves toward me and acts on my behalf so that now my boast, my praise, the overflow that comes from me is boasting in the Lord. To come to Kumba Adeyemo in the Africa Bible Commentary explains it this way. He says, what an honor to be specifically chosen by God to receive his gift of salvation. This was no impulsive decision, but was made before the creation of the world, the election of believers, God's choosing of us, and the gift of eternal life do not date from the cross of Christ, but are part of God's eternal plan. Some people claim that God's choice of believers or his predestination of them is unfair because it selects some and excludes others. What they fail to see is that the underlying motive for God's choice and predestination is love, which does not exclude anyone. John 3.16, those excluded in the end are those who refuse God's offer of salvation. John 3, 17 through 19. In that passage, John 3, it says, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This offer of the gospel of Jesus is available to everyone. But it continues, those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So we have choice. God chooses, but we also are called to believe. God's choosing love, his choosing action overflows from his love. I was at a thing once, I, I'll never forget this. Uh, we were years away from being parents. Um, but but a, a pastor had come to a, a meeting that we were having and was talking about parenting. And he told us that he tells his children, I love you because I'm your dad. And that I never forgot it. It sticks with me. I tell our kid that now because that love is rooted in character and relationship. I love you because I'm your dad. I don't love you because you do good things. I don't love you because uh, you're cute. I don't love you because I love you because of this nature of this relationship, because I've chosen to love you based on my character. That is what God is telling us in his choice, that he's working his will to show grace to the undeserving. It's available to everyone in Christ. He loves us because he loves us. And so we got to look at that phrase in Christ, which leads us to the second part of this passage. In him, Christ here, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Sins forgiven. To what level? To what extent? In accordance with the riches of God's grace, his, as we just sang about his infinite grace that he lavished on us, generosity language. You know, God's the only one who can't overspend. Lavishing grace, covering our sins because of Christ's blood, because of the redemption. And this is where we start to see this in him language, this union with Christ 
language, which we've got to talk about. We've got to look at our union with Christ because that's going to inform the way we think about our identity and who we are. But first, let's look at this redemption. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Redemption just means gaining possession of through purchasing or, or clearing of a debt. In the Old Testament, it looked like uh, paying a debt to deliver someone out of slavery. In the New Testament, it looks like rescue from bondage, but not to physical slavery as much as spiritual slavery, which we'll look at. In redemption, Old or New Testament, the Redeemer pays the price. Someone is in bondage and a price must be paid The Redeemer pays the price. In Christ, we have a Redeemer. He pays the price with his blood to achieve the forgiveness of sins. Christ is the Redeemer. So why does he redeem? Redemption is why he came. In his mission statement in Luke chapter 4, he's quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah to show that this was always God's plan to redeem in his son. And Jesus stands up in the temple and reads the scriptures and says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Why is Jesus on earth? Why did he come? Why is he sent from the Father? To liberate people, to set us free from our oppression. He's come to ransom, to rescue and redeem sinners. That was his mission all along. He says it this way in the gospel according to Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His mission was to be a ransom payment, to set us free. But we have to ask, set us free from what? And this is where union with Christ becomes so significant. One of the best chapters, union with Christ is just a big overarching doctrine. Other, other word is teaching. And one of the best chapters, if you want to really understand union with Christ, is to go to Romans chapter 6 in the New Testament. Where the people have, have been told of this grace. God's forgiven you. He loves you because he loves you. You've been set free in Christ. You're justified. You're righteous. You're okay. And the Romans then rhetorically would ask, Should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? If we sin more, it shows just how forgiving God is. So should we do that? And God, Paul says this. He says, by no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We were baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized, united with him in death. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, Paul continues, we will certainly be also be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we know our Bible story, we know Jesus doesn't stay dead. He walks out of the grave. 
Paul says we'll be, if we're united with him in his death, we're united with him in his resurrection life. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. This is the idea of the gospel, that when I put my faith in Christ, it is as if I died with him on the cross, I am so united with him that my sin stays in the grave and I emerge with him to new life, set free from sin. Paul continues verse eight. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Jesus came to rescue us, to ransom us, to buy us out of our bondage, our slavery to sin. And we're actually now dead to sin and alive to God. What is this slavery to sin? I've got just two examples. Sin encompasses many things in the Bible, but it's certainly, we sometimes only think it's our actions, but it's also our hearts. So for example, if I steal, that's an action that I did, but it's my heart of greed that's the problem. If I gossip, that's an action of sin that I did, but it's my heart of pride. I said, I would never do that. Can you believe they did that? I'm better than them. That's my heart. Christ has come to redeem us from being dead to sin, being enslaved to sin, being unable to resist those things and made us alive to God. He's ransomed us from slavery to sin, but he's done more than that. Galatians 4, another epistle from the apostle Paul says this, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. We've been rescued, we've been redeemed, we've been ransomed from slavery under the law. If you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, what's the law? The basic idea of the law in the Old Testament is rule keeping. In order to be right with God, I've got to walk in all these rules. But the challenge is we fail immediately. The challenge is the law only works on outward behaviors. It doesn't really deal with the heart. The challenge is when we fail, we're condemned. Don't steal, don't gossip. Then I'll be okay. Well, failed that. We need a redemption from that. We need to relate with God not as a slave, not as a bondservant, but as a child, as an heir. So Christ comes to ransom us, to redeem us from slavery to the law. And why does he do this? To show us God's grace. With all wisdom and understanding, it says in Ephesians 8 here, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. It's been God's good pleasure to make known to us what he's doing in Christ. 
to reveal. It was actually in his mind wise to make this mystery known. I don't know if you've ever done an escape room. We've done, we've done one and we failed miserably. Um, but we've also played escape room, the game, like any of those games are super fun, uh, recommend. Um, and with, with escape rooms, the thing it always is, it feels like, uh, it's the thing that's, it's like a surprise. There's always a twist and you're like, oh, that's how we get out. We needed this four digit code that was like right in front of you. It was like on the wall in four places or something. Like one of the clock numbers was circled and, and you're like, oh, how could we not see this? It's right in front of us. That's the story of the gospel, the Old Testament. Jesus is right in front of us. And here now God is delighting to make known his plan, to reveal the mystery. The apostle Paul can't help but praise because he's one who's had the mystery revealed and now he's making it known. God delights in making Jesus known to us. Why have a great plan? Why pull off a great plan if you can't share it with people? And so that we get the sharing of this plan. In him we were also chosen, verse 11, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for, to the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This, okay. When someone puts their trust in Jesus, when they believe the gospel, God's eternal plan is playing out in that life. When you believed, you heard this message of truth, this gospel of your salvation, and you were included. You were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, a deposit, a guarantee, an engagement ring. This is coming to pass. Until the redemption of those who are God's possession, this language of included, sealed. God works his plan through the spread of the gospel, through making his son known so that more and more people are included in this paragraph. Oh my gosh, I'm getting excited. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. You're marked, you're stamped. You've got the Holy Spirit. You're a child of God. You've got a new name, a new family, a new life. You are a new person. When someone believes the gospel, it's a miracle. And it's God working his plan, giving us his spirit. Adopting us, Romans 8, 14 through 17 says this, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, by the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. This evidence of our adoption of God, God's plan from eternity to bring a people to himself as his children, as his heirs, through the redemption of his son, 
giving us a new family, a new name, a new life, comes to us in Christ. It is because of our union with Christ. This is a big list. I also, another thing I apparently do when I preach is lists. I love the lists, guys. Union with Christ. Let's talk about it. We've seen it. Let's talk about it a little more. United with Christ. I am one. I'm grown together. The Greek word literally means planted together, like a tree together. Interwoven. United with Christ in God's eternal plan. It was always his plan. United with Christ in his obedient life. All of Jesus' obedience, his perfect righteousness, when he walked this earth, every area where we fail, he didn't. United with him in his obedient life, which means he's the right person to die, which is why we saw he came. So we can be united with Christ in his death for sin, that all my debt that I owe God because of a life of sin, past, present, and future, is taken with Christ to the cross when I put my faith in him and I'm sealed. I'm brought from death to life, united with Christ in his resurrection life. As Paul said in Romans 6, that now I have newness of life. That I'm united with Christ now that the spirit that he was led by and filled with is the spirit that indwells us that I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God. I can draw near to the Father. I can go into his trophy room and get fingerprint smudges on all his trophies of grace. Because I'm a child. Not only that, I have eternal life, a secure hope. I know what's gonna be my future. Even better, called into Christ's diverse body in the church. That we share the Spirit, we share the Father, we share this redemption. That unites us in our diversity. And we saw then all things, everything in heaven and on earth, all things will be united in Christ in the new creation. Union with Christ is everything. It's God's eternal plan. It's what he's doing now. It's what he does through the gospel. When you believe, you're united with Christ. And it's what our future is. So how does that then impact our identity? When I say, I am my blank. What defines me? What, is, what gives me purpose? What do I put my trust in? What do I look for meaning in? How do I think about myself? If you say, I'm my past. The things I carry with me, the baggage, the hurts. Maybe I'm my family role. However good I'm doing as a, as a son or a mom, maybe that's what defines me. Maybe I'm my relationship status. If I could only be married, if I could only be single, my next promotion, I'm not okay until I get that next promotion. Then I'll, I'll finally feel like I matter. Maybe I'm my accomplishments. If I can't get something right, something's wrong with me. Maybe my body image, my education. Do I look down on others who don't have the same degrees as me? My health, if I could only get more fit. The challenge with putting our hope and trust in these things is we're never good enough. But the gospel says, no, you're not those things. 
The gospel reshapes our identity. What if you say, okay, I'm my politics. I've got a better view on politics than everyone I know. I'm my anxiety. I'm defined by my mental health struggles. I'm my failures. I look back at the things I've done wrong. That's what makes me. I'm my status in life. If I can only get to that next echelon. Maybe I'm my self-worth. I'm my reputation, what others think of me. That's what defines me. My financial security, my sin. Again, these things will eat us alive. But the gospel says, no, you're not those things. The gospel reshapes our identity. The gospel identity is this. I am my Savior's. The central and defining way that I think about me is that I belong to Jesus Christ. So we can say with the Apostle Paul, this this memory verse from Galatians 2.20, this ultimate verse on internalizing our identity, getting this idea down into the marrow of our bones, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is our identity reality. If you're in Christ, you no longer live. Christ lives in you. So now you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. I think about myself. I think about myself as one who is loved who Christ died for. How can I root my identity in Christ? Because of this cross, this giving of himself for me, this dying a death in my place. I am loved by Christ. I'm in Christ. I'm united with Christ. So now I can root my identity in Christ. Just from this, these few verses here, 1 through 14, we've seen these phrases for how we can reshape our identity and think about ourselves as in Christ. And this isn't individual, it's together. In the church, this is who we are. We're saints, holy people, chosen, holy and blameless, adopted. We're God's children, redeemed. I've been purchased, forgiven reconciled. I no longer have alienation from God. I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit testifies in me that I'm God's child and I'm an heir, a co-heir with Christ. That's the beauty of this gospel, the, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all at work in bringing this eternal plan to fruition so that we now can internalize this story so that when I think about who I am, I can remember the gospel. When other things want to define me, they're deflected off because I'm rooted in Christ. And I remember I am my heavenly father's. I'm God's possession. That was his plan all along. He wants to show off his grace. So how does he do it? He sends his son to redeem. He sends his spirit to open our eyes to see and believe this gospel. And testify to our adoption that I have a new family, a new name, a new life. I am my heavenly father's. That's what defines me. I am Christ's. 
That's what defines me. That is why we praise God's grace. The God who had all power and might and could have done anything works to save us through his son. So as we close, I just ask, are you united to Christ? I was thinking about the illustration of a lunch table. You ever go, if you go to a new school or you go to a like high school for the first time, I know we're all in high school, right? No, but think about it. Back when you went to high school and you walk into the lunchroom, where do I sit? It's so awkward, so uncomfortable. Even now as an adult, I was at a thing recently and there's a group of people sitting at a table. I'm like, am I, can I go sit with them? I don't know. Should I, maybe I'll just go sit by myself. I don't, where do I sit? If you're a newcomer to Christianity, new to the gospel, new to hearing this message, you might feel that way. You might feel like, where do I sit? Do I have a seat? What this passage tells us is when you walk into that lunchroom, you're looking at a lunchroom that God built. When you look at what table to sit at, you're looking at the table that God built. It's his plan. He built the table, he built the lunchroom, and the offer is, the offer of the gospel is, sit down. Pull up a chair, grab a seat. Believe, rest, stop working. Stop trying to earn favor with God. Stop trying to create your own identity by by creating yourself. Sit down at God's table. By trusting Christ, there's always an open seat at the table with Jesus because of the redemption that he accomplished. Secondly, root your identity in Christ. Respond to the gospel by rooting your identity in Christ. Dig in. Memorize that passage. Write down that list. Go back. Circle every word in that passage. Say, that's what defines me. I am my Savior's. I am my heavenly father's. That's the number one story that I tell about myself when I think about myself. That's what I think about my brothers and sisters in the church. We belong to Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. God is our father. Root your identity in Christ. We're going to move now to a time of communion. And it's a great time to remember our union with Christ and God's plan to unite us to his son. It's a great time to remember that we, when we believe the gospel, are united to Christ for all time. But it's also a great time to remember that we, when we believe the gospel, are united to one another as brothers and sisters in the church, in the new family of believers. So we take communion with our thoughts on our own sin and our own struggles, and we cast them upon Jesus. We take communion And remember our brothers and sisters in Christ. One of my favorite things is to watch you guys take communion and remind myself that we are brothers and sisters because of what Christ has done. Uh, At Hope, we practice, we call it open communion. You don't need to be a member of this church or any church. You can feel free to avail yourself of the elements on either side up here. We only ask that you would be a follower of Jesus. So you would be someone that says, yes, I trust Christ for redemption. I'm united with Christ. As we take these elements, they're reminders of our redemption. His, the, the, the bread, his body broken for us. The juice, his blood shed for us. What was co- our cost to be redeemed was Christ. And now we are in Christ. Let me pray. I'll invite the worship team up and we'll continue on.
in service. Father, we praise your glorious grace that in a world that looks at quote-unquote undeserving people and seeks to cast them out, you look at us sinners and say, my plan is to redeem and I'm gonna do what it takes. You sent your son to pay our price and you sent your spirit into our hearts to testify to our adoption that we belong to you. So God, I pray now as we think about that, you would move in us, help us to worship you, help us to praise your grace, that you would be glorified in our hearts right now as we think and reflect on the beauty of your plan, what you have accomplished in Christ. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.